This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, November 13th. I'm Rob Bluey, Editor-in-Chief. And I'm Kelsey Harkness, Senior News Producer and host of our other podcast called Problematic Women. On today's show, we'll feature an interview with Emily Jashinsky, Culture Editor at The Federalist. We also have your letters, and Lindsey Burke joins us to share some good news about school choice in Florida. We're joined today by Emily Jashinsky, Culture Editor at The Federalist. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to begin, obviously, with the election. Here we are just a week out. Um, So many big takeaways you've heard from the news media. But what is it that conservatives need to know about the results last Tuesday? Well, I think the message really worked in states that it needed to on the Senate side. So I think Republicans had a huge success in Missouri in particular. Um, I think the margin there was five, six percent. And I honestly didn't expect Josh Hawley to win that um, because Claire McCaskill had such a knack for hanging in there and getting lucky election after election. But um, he ran he messaged conservative principles really well. So one of the most interesting things about his campaign to me is that he came out swinging in his announcement speech against Hollywood, Wall Street and Washington, kind of this trifecta of elite uh, institutions or whatever you want to call them. And he hammered that going through the campaign and talking about how the left is tied up in these institutions, in these elite coastal enclaves. um, And it really worked for him. And so in those states, that was successful. We obviously need to come up with a way to talk better about conservative principles in some of these suburban areas, Um, maybe like figuring out what we can do in Orange County. Those those places where Democrats made some gains. But, you know, they were gunning for turnout. They got high turnout on the left. And so we'll just have to see going forward. One interesting thing I did see um, in my home state of Wisconsin is that Tammy Baldwin won 17 counties that Donald Trump won. And on top of that, 12 counties went for both Ron Johnson in 2016 and Tammy Baldwin in 2018. So there's something, I think, about this this message. Um, she, she's kind of a, I don't want to necessarily say Bernie Sanders style, but she's very, very progressive, kind of an old school progressive, sort of with Trump on trade issues. And so there's something in the Rust Belt and in these rural areas to that. Um, and, you know, even in a post-Trump world, Republicans can't give it up. Clearly. I'm glad you brought up Wisconsin. I'll come back to that in a minute. Josh Hawley, uh, former Heritage Foundation intern, I should know. Intern? Uh, what? I didn't yes, even know that. back in the year 2000. Uh, he is somebody who, on election night, I was watching Fox News, and Britt Hume said, isn't it amazing that Beto O'Rourke and Andrew Gillum and all these other young progressives mm. got so much attention from the media and almost nobody covered Josh Hawley. So, I mean, certainly a surprise. Um, and some, yes. and it was, it was you know, a rare moment where a respected journalist like Britt Hume, I think, was scolding some of his colleagues <laughs> in the business. But, but you do have a unique perspective coming from Wisconsin. Of course, some losses there. Scott Walker, uh, the lieutenant governor, Rebecca Cleefish. Yeah. Uh, so what is it in a state like that, which Donald Trump had success in, uh, that changed in, in this uh, two-year interval? Yeah, I think um, there was a lot of talk about how between Paul Ryan and Reince Priebus and Scott Walker and um, Ron Johnson, to some extent, how Wisconsin had turned red. Uh, and it really never turned red. It's a very purple state, and I would say almost still a blue state to an extent. And when it, Walker just didn't have 
big room for one of these high turnout midterms. Like he he didn't have much because it's such a swing state. He you can't have much room for error. People I think are upset about Foxconn in Wisconsin. Is what I've heard on the ground um, that that became a big campaign issue. And so I think they're just in these states. You have to you have to have high Republican turnout. And Scott Walker had always electrified his base so much um, that in 2012, 2014, he was just able to get really high Republican turnout. And I think, you know, if Waukesha County, for instance, um, I'll have to go look into that. That's where I'm from. But I've, I heard from some Wisconsin sources that it just wasn't where it used to be in some of those those really conservative southeastern Wisconsin counties. So I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's just really tricky. Um, but and Trump only won that state by less than one percentage point. A small margin of victory, small margin of victory for Tony Evers. So swing state. Sure is. <laughs> Well, on the note of media bias, Emily, you are a frequent guest on Howard Kurtz's Media Buzz. Yeah. So we wanted to know what your take is on the Trump administration's tangling with fake news. <laughs> it's such a tough question. I think for I think it's a tough question for a lot of people because conservatives, I mean, the reason that I came to D.C., I think when I'm looking back at when I was in high school and I went to GW, so I made a decision when I was like 18 to move here. When I look back on it, I really think it was because I was so frustrated by media bias. I, I think that's what it was. I think that was like a huge motivating factor to me. Um, and so we've all been frustrated by this for decades, conservatives had. It's nothing new. Um, and so I think sometimes uh, it's it's fantastic. I mean, I love his, his – I love when he calls the media out sometimes because they're so ridiculous and there's so many different times when – Republicans in the past maybe just wouldn't come out swinging against the press or they it wouldn't they don't get the message through that they're upset about the press. Trump gets the message through <laughs> that something's wrong. And so now we have this larger conversation about media bias that's more high profile than it was in the past. At the same time, <laughs> the the one particular phrase I don't love is enemies of the people. Um, I'm not a big fan of that. I don't like using the language of war um, for, you know, in a in our civil society. I, I don't necessarily know that that's the healthiest thing, but he, he has a way of messaging our problems with media bias in a way that's elevated the conversation to kind of a top line feature of the Trump era. And I think that's a great thing. <laughs> one of the members of the media, Trump is likely referring to when he says enemy of the press, uh, enemy of the people, is Jim Acosta of CNN, of course, who just last week was temporarily denied his hard pass uh, to the White House. What is your take on the situation? Major crisis. Yeah, Jim Acosta <laughs> not allowed into the briefing room uh, without some kind of uh, temporary pass. No, it's it's I think. On the one hand, it's giving Jim Acosta and CNN the um, hostility and attention that they want. Uh, Jim Acosta loves this stuff, um, so I don't like that necessarily. But at the same time, um, what he did was ridiculous. I mean, he asked his questions when he was when the president gave him. I mean, the president was in a long exchange with him, going back and forth. And when he was asked to move on, he wouldn't move on. So I totally understand it. Jim Acosta really is. But also it's what the White House wanted to happen because the White House knew that by starting this conversation, taking away his hard pass, um, all of the media would breathlessly rush to defend Jim Acosta. And that is only helpful to the White House to see all of these people huddle around Jim Acosta and, and lock arms with Jim Acosta because he's really the caricature of what so many people see as wrong with the press. Like he's this guy who is a reporter 
purportedly a reporter, a straight news reporter, for a news network, that the Apples and Bananas network, the, the network <laughs> of objectivity, who goes out there and just openly, shamelessly opines when he asks his questions. He's obviously not objective. And so to see the media rush around him and defend him, that's exactly what the White House wants, right? Because the media is now defending this person who's doing his job wrong and in a way that a lot of people um, think is eating away at our politics. So it's it's just it's it's hard to even understand why they don't see this, but I don't you know. <laughs> no, it's it's so true. And and look, I I have been critical of some of the people who are part of the White House press corps. Mm-hmm. Um, our own Fred Lucas is a member of the press corps. He White House uh, Correspondents Association. He's in the briefing room. He's been there under President Obama and President Trump. And last year. Uh, it was at Fred who was doing some pool reporting. Kelsey, remember this? Uh, when some people's people who were in that cabal, that club, uh, decided that they would take it out on Fred and some other journalists, both left and right, who they didn't really want to be part of their club, wow. and they uh, restricted his uh, his membership. He's wow. not; he can't be a full fledged member. And Breitbart is in the same group, as along with Mother Jones. So, I I, I certainly um, see kind of that that yeah. mentality that exists here in Washington, and I I think frankly it's one of the reasons that many. Americans uh, have lost trust in the mm. press because they they don't see it necessarily representing their values. And and one one perfect example of this on the front page of Friday's Washington Post is an article about Jim Acosta. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and then in tiny text it says, um, you know, angry mob storms Tucker Carlson's house. Oh my God! Inside page A twelve. Now. If this was just reversed, if Tucker Carlson was a a left-wing progressive commentator on MSNBC and there was a conservative mob that stormed his house, I'm sure it would have been prominent front-page news. Yes. But my my question uh, goes more to the the fact that you did have this left-wing mob basically scaring Tucker's wife into Mm -hmm. hiding in their own house. Um, Is this the new normal, this kind of behavior that we're seeing? Yes. I I mean, I see no end in sight for this at all. I I only see this escalating um, because it's – I mean, we've seen it steadily escalate. I think over the past – Really, I feel like this started with the Red Hen incident with Sarah Sanders. Um, And then in reaction to that, there was some pushback from people in the center and on the right saying this is completely uncivil. Then you have people like Maxine Waters coming out and saying, no, interrupt them. Don't let them eat anywhere. Don't let them pump gas or whatever the heck she said. Um, And so I think since that moment, we're we're seeing an escalation. I don't see any end in sight for this. Uh, And it was really unfortunate because, as you mentioned, Tucker's wife, I mean, these I think it was Antifa, cracked the door and she had to barricade herself in the pantry and call 911. And like you said, if this was uh, Lawrence O'Donnell's wife, I mean, oh, my God. Or Jim Acosta. Jim Acosta. I don't know if he's married, but if you can imagine this happening to a left leaning uh, White House correspondent like Jim Acosta, it would be front page news of the Washington Post, it would be completely yeah. reversed. The upsetting thing to me about this, and I think I heard Tucker mention this last night. He called into a show last night. I think Brian Kilmeade was hosting, or last last week. Um, and what he said was, the sad thing is that I'm the one who has these people on my show. Like, who puts Antifa on his show and has conversations with them? The only person who does it is Tucker Carlson, of all people. He's the one that would go out there and talk to them and be like, no, I want to hear what you're saying. Let's have a debate. Let's argue. And yet he's the one that got targeted by this. Well, let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the PC culture getting out of control. Um, this is something I know that you have covered in your work. A particular article that stands out to me was the way you covered the Megyn Kelly situation, who 
as we all know, has been MIA from NBC. I'll be very (laughs) curious to see where she ends up. Uh, But tell us about your take, for those who didn't read your article on it in The Federalist, tell us your take on what happened with Megyn Kelly. Yeah, I have kind of an interesting experience with this because I was one of the few people who was watching the show live when it happened. (laughs) Um, And honestly, I didn't really even blink because I was like, that's, you know, I don't agree with that. But the conversation moved on and her panelists pushed back. Um, And they were really it was in the context of she used to do the segment on her show when it still existed um, that they kind of all sat at a table and had really good discussions. Um, She had like four panelists, including herself, and they would just take on all the hot topics of the day. And it was kind of a callback to how she rocketed to fame in the first place. She got to be her smart, um, argumentative, contrarian self and um, it was just a de- it was just a conversation. It was a debate. It was the kind of debate that you would have, you know, at a barbecue or something. And someone says something kind of stupid. And you tell them that it's wrong, and you move on. And I get that you have to be more careful. And this is what I wrote in the piece for the Federalist. Like I understand that you have to be more careful on television. You you have a responsibility anytime you're on the air not to spread bad ideas or to corrode the discourse more largely. But everyone on that panel pushed back on her. Everyone by the end of the segment was like, that's, you know, we don't we don't agree with this. It sounds kind of racist. And at the end of the day, it really was just not that big of a deal. And so as I watched this blow up on Twitter, I couldn't believe it. And it was just really because people wanted like Megan. Megan Kelly is a pinata because people on the right don't like her. People on the left don't like her. And it's like sport to beat up on Megan Kelly anytime she slips up just a tiny bit. Um, and so I think that's I think that's what happened. NBC used it as an excuse to get rid of someone who wasn't performing in the ratings. And um, on top of all of that, you know, all of the people who dislike Megyn Kelly, which probably a lot of people because she's, you know, people on the right think she's a crazy liberal. People on the left think she is a racist conservative. Um, it's just it's easy. It's so easy for people to gang up on, on Megyn Kelly. But really what that segment this is what I wrote. What that segment showed to me is that the best uh, the best answer to to bad ideas to wrong ideas is to just talk about it because that's what happened they were having a conversation it wasn't as though she was delivering a monologue this was in the context of a debate and in the course of the debate everyone pushed back and that's how it ended and, <laughs> and I so. saw on Twitter you faced a lot of <sighs> accusations for for even that even that take yeah you had I think people call you Racist in some way? Probably. I don't know. <laughs> I, I try not to pay you, attention. You received some nasty attacks afterwards on Twitter. I don't like. I, I don't know about you, but like, I always just don't. I don't even look at that <laughs> stuff unless it's like unless I get like a tweet that's like all caps and it seems like something that needs to be reported. Like <laughs> it's like threatening. And but. and you weren't even sticking up for Megyn Kelly's idea. No. You were sticking up for having a the idea that you can and should be able to have a conversation about this yeah. and explain have the opportunity to explain to Megyn Kelly why that was a bad idea. Right, exactly. And that's what's so frustrating is that we can't even talk about the fact that we need to talk about things. <laughs> we can't even have that conversation about conversations. Um, it's so silly. And so that's why, um, I mean, places like Heritage and the Federalists are so important because the kids that are me in high school that you know are conservative and are interested in those ideas moving into the space like why would any kid want to do that i mean it's just we need these institutions that that give people the opportunity to be confident in the fact that there are other conservatives out there and that you know they'll have your back if if you say something 
um, that happens to be in disagreement with like fervent progressivism, which is this, what the city is run on and what um, our institutions are run on. So, yeah, I mean, that's I, I'm very grateful to a place like the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist and all of the great conservative institutions. Well, that is that is certainly a, a priority of ours. It's it's one of the reasons uh that I think the Daily Signal was created um, by Heritage. Uh, it's one of the reasons we encourage people like Kelsey to contribute mm-hmm. to the Federalist. And uh, and I want to ask you because we've had David Harsani on the show. Obviously, we've had uh, people like Molly Hemingway on the program. So the Federalist, Kelsey does her show with Brie Payton, Problematic mm-hmm. Women. Uh, what is it that the culture editor at the Federalist does? <laughs> and uh, tell us a little bit more about your job. It's so funny you ask that because I was going through the comment section on one of my articles the other day, and which I never do. But w- someone said, like, what the heck is a culture editor? Like, why does the Federalist need a culture <laughs> editor? But the idea really is that um, – uh, I write a lot about, honestly, The Real Housewives, The Kardashians, reality television, um, music, movies, it, all of that sort of thing, because I think it's a huge, I mean, we, you know, most conservatives accept that we, ha- we have a problem sort of with the culture. <laughs> with, with uh, You know, it's Andrew Breitbart's famous statement, like politics is downstream of culture. And so if we're not engaged in the culture, how can we change politics? How can we uh, change or preserve the good things that we that we need to preserve. And so I guess a lot of it is uh, my biggest problem, I would say, is like if you're looking at a conservative outlet, um, how whenever they cover an entertainment story, it's usually and a lot of times reasonably to rage at the culture. Right. Because it's usually someone did something wrong and conservatives are now going to spill 500 words raging at it. I think it's that's that stuff is totally necessary but it will come across much better if not everything we write is raging at the culture. And some of it is just having fun, um, trying to understand it. Um, and, and rather than, even when even when someone does something wrong, a Kardashian says something stupid, which probably happens once a day. Um, but even when that happens, it's so much more productive, I think, to try to understand it. And rather than just say these people are all idiots, they're destroying everything, which they may be destroying some things, <laughs> but they're also really funny. And so uh, just to be able to have fun with these things and to help bring conservatives in a little bit to culture um, is what I see my job as. Uh, it's hard for me to rage at culture sometimes because so, like, The Real Housewives is funny. I have a hard time not laughing at The Real Housewives, stuff like that. So that's what I try to do, basically. It's it's an interesting job. <laughs> I'm totally with you. And one of the additional ways you have been contributing over at The Federalist is through Bright, which for mm-hmm. those who aren't familiar is a morning email we say it's for women by women, but we have a lot of very loyal male <laughs> readers too, and we welcome them in our circle. Um, every morning, you get an you get a roundup of the news, culture, entertainment from a different female writer. Uh, I my edition comes out every Wednesday, and you've recently um, been writing for Tuesday's mm-hmm. edition. Um, this has been new for you since you joined the Federalist yeah. just a couple months ago. So I'm curious uh, where what you where you see a product like Bright going. Um, we sort of see it as an alternative to the skim. Yeah. Um, but I, I personally think it's very important to reach out to young women and connect with them and to show that there is an alternative way to get your news by women who are fun and do take, you know, do do love following politics, but then also appreciate uh, the culture and entertainment stories as well. Yes, 100%. I was just going to say exactly what you said is that 
the reason like my position as culture editor exists and something like Bright exists is because things like The Skim exist. And The Skim, for listeners that might not know, is basically a morning email that's a roundup of the news of the day, uh, really geared towards women. And it has a totally, I would say, left of center bias. It's not always outright, but it's a clear left of center bias. It's not exactly fair to conservatives. And so if you want to create a product that's competitive with The Skim, or if you want to create commentary or opinion sections that are competitive with the others that people like going, you have to be able to meet them where they are. That doesn't mean you concede your principles, but people in the real world outside D.C. aren't obsessing over politics. They just want to enjoy th- Like they, A lot of people rarely ever think about politics. And so they come home at night, they watch Real Housewives, they like it, they watch uh, 90 Day Fiance, or they like whatever this TV is, and they're not thinking about the moral implications of it. They're not thinking about the political implications of it. So I think the importance of something like Bright it gets you it makes inroads with those groups and helps you relate to them helps them relate to you and so it, that's just I, it's the perfect example bright is like the perfect example of what conservatives should be doing if only we had someone like oprah endorsing <laughs> our product <laughs> does she endorse the skim oh yeah she's a big fan of the skim oh, they boy. have they the skim has had so many celebrity endorsements uh they they get deals from companies who want to sponsor them they have private donations. Mm. They have massive headquarters in New York City. And, you know, the editors over at Bright, a lot of us are doing it (laughs) into the wee hours of the evening on top of our normal jobs just because it is something we believe in. It's a product. uh, We have a very loyal loyal readership base, which um, really gives me the motivation to do it every week, um, that they do continually open our product, even without those celebrity endorsements. So for all those uh, who do read and subscribe to Bright, thank you. We really do appreciate it. And um, you can sign up, getbrightemail.com or via the Federalist slash newsletters. Well, Kelsey, thanks for doing what you're doing. And Emily, we appreciate you being on today's show. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to be here. Do you like podcasts like New York Times The Daily or anything from NPR that breaks down important policy issues? But are you tired of the liberal spin? Then you need to check out Heritage Explains. Each week, we dive into timely policy issues at a 101 level from a conservative perspective. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. We feature some of our favorites both on this show and in our Morning Bell newsletter each week. Kelsey, what do we have? Dwayne Potager writes, Why is there little to no positive or encouraging news? Every day we are bombarded with negative news and the terrible things that are happening. What would happen if we started hearing about good things? It would strengthen and encourage instead of negative, oppressive, discouraging and discouraging reports. Let's hear about the good, encouraging, strengthening and uplifting stories. What we hear and see has a huge impact on what we think and believe. Let the news create a whole new perspective on life, especially in America, especially in America, where we have so much to be positive and thankful about. Well, I certainly agree with that, and I hope you can find some of those good news stories on The Daily Signal, Dwayne. Well, we have another letter from Anton Zawicki who writes, As an economist, I feel it necessary to point out that President Obama added $30 trillion in long-term obligation and unfunded mandates to the U.S. economy. President Trump has rolled back some of them. 
eight years of Obama nearly destroyed the largest economy in history. When the collapse does come, it will be fallout from the past 30-plus years of Democrats giving away the farm and rhino Republicans being complicit in every way. This is why the swamp has gone insane. Your letter could be featured on next week's show by sending us an email to letters at dailysignal.com or leave us a voice message at 202-608-6205. Want to get up to speed about the Supreme Court? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast about everything that's happening at the Supreme Court and what the justices are up to. We're joined now by Lindsay Burke, director of the Heritage Foundation Center for Education Policy. Lindsay has joined us to talk about some good news from the state of Florida. Now, as of this recording, it appears that Congressman Ron DeSantis will be the next governor of Florida. And that bodes well for parents and students because of his support for more education choice. Florida has long been a leader on school choice. And as you and Jason Bedrick of EdChoice just conducted the largest survey ever of a K-12 private school choice option, the results here were clear. 92% of families using a tax credit scholarship in Florida reported being satisfied with their child's experience. Lindsay, tell us about those results. Well, first, I really appreciate your emphasis on largest ever because it really is the largest ever study survey of a private school choice program. So that in and of itself is exciting and gives us, I would argue, some of the best evidence to date of the priorities of families when they're engaging in the school selection process, shopping around for schools that that they hope will be a a good fit for their children. And so you note 92% of families are satisfied with the tax credit scholarship in Florida. And by the way, this is a large-scale option in Florida. There are more than 100,000 students who participate in the tax credit scholarship program there. So the fact that 92% are satisfied really says something. And so we wanted to figure out what are families looking for. So we surveyed these families. We sent a survey to about 66,000 families in Florida and got about 14,700 responses from these families. So a high response rate, about 22%. And what really stood out to us was what families are looking for are some of the intangible outcomes that schooling can deliver that aren't well captured in test scores. So just quickly, two examples. We had families in the survey rank their top three priorities when they're looking for a school. And the number one thing that stood out was that families are looking for a religious environment and religious instruction. So 66% of families listed that in one of their top three factors. And that was closely followed by morals and character instruction. So 52% of families listed that. And those are the only two factors that rose above 50% for families in our survey. Just quickly, I'll add, the thing that came way, way, way at the bottom of the list was standardized test scores. Only 4% of families listed how a school performs on a state standardized test as being an important factor to them. How should state lawmakers in Florida and other states use this data to develop policies that encourage some of the findings that you've discovered? Yeah, well, as I said earlier, um, families are really prioritizing things that aren't well captured in test scores. So religious instruction and morals and character development, are schools forming, you know, good citizens. And that's something that when policymakers are designing the regulations that govern school choice programs, they should bear in mind. And so if you create a regulation that says 
every private school that participates in a state school choice program has to take the same state test as a public school. We know from Louisiana that private schools just won't participate. And then you end up limiting choices for families on a factor that they don't really even prioritize, at least not as much as some of these other intangibles. So that's really important. Policymakers need to keep regulations light so that choice can actually flourish. And then I, I would just say that, you know, what these findings show is that parents choose their children's schools because those private schools offered either what the public system can't offer or just doesn't offer. And so that's something else really important to keep in mind. I think it's rare that 92% of parents agree on anything. And in this case, they're expressing satisfaction when it comes to their children's education, which is perhaps one of the most important uh, things a parent could ever desire to be satisfied with. But still, school choice options like what we see in Florida received so much pushback. Tell us about that pushback and um, you know, how how do you push back against the pushback? Yeah, well, you know, it's the same old story we hear over and over again. Special interest groups always push back against school choice options that provide families. And bear in mind, these are low-income families in Florida who qualify for this, this program. And so the special interest groups will always push back against options that provide an escape hatch for these children to go somewhere other than their government-assigned, government-run public school. And so it's no surprise that Teachers unions in particular see this as an existential threat to their um, sort of uh, power that they have over the existing public education system. And so we see pushback, um, not only in Florida, although in Florida we have seen really just um, tremendous growth and bipartisan support for school choice over the years. But we still see it state after state, states like Arizona and Wisconsin and, and you name it. We see special interest groups really try to thwart school choice policies. But I think at the end of the day, parents are satisfied policymakers know that parents are satisfied. It is becoming more of an issue for families when they're thinking about the future of their state. I mean, the election that we just saw unfold in Florida, you know, if you look at some of the outcomes, there were something like 8 million votes cast. And, you know, there are, like I said, over 100,000 private school choice families in the state now. And and they know that uh, the long-term viability of their uh, tax credit scholarship program in that state relies on policymakers who are also supportive. And so school choice could have actually played a non-trivial um, effect in, in what we saw transpire over the past, past week or so. Lindsay, aside from Florida, what are some of the other bright spots where you see a lot of positive action happening on school choice? Well, we see so many <laughs> everywhere. I mean, we see state after state embracing private school choice options. Arizona, of course, always comes uh, front and center in my mind because they were the first state to enact an education savings account option. This is uh, the sort of new and improved and refined school voucher model where families can use all of their money uh, that would have been spent on their child in the public school system by the state to not only pay private school tuition, but when they want, they can hire a private tutor. If their child needs special education services and therapies, they can pay for that. They can buy online courses. They can roll over unused funds year to year. So just the sheer innovation in choice that we saw Arizona just sort of leap forward with uh, in 2011 is still, to me, really exciting. Um, and, and notably, Florida was the second state to adopt a ESA option. And so that's still alive and well in Florida And I think we're up to about 20,000 families in Florida using ESAs there, uh, about 5,000 or so in Arizona. Um, Nevada, Mississippi, uh, Tennessee also have ESA options in law. Nevada's isn't operational yet, so we're still watching Nevada to see what unfolds. But 
there are just states all over the country who are moving. What will be most interesting to me at the state level is to see what Texas does in the near term. Texas is one of those states that you just think, why in the world <laughs> don't they have school choice in place? Uh, they have an opportunity next year to make that happen. We will all be waiting with bated breath to see if they do it. School choice options are, for the most part, led by the states. It can be difficult to keep track of what's happening yeah. in your own state. So for anyone who's listening who might want to know um, whether they have choice in their state or if they don't, what they can do to advocate for that, what would you tell them? Yeah, so there are a lot of great resources out there. Heritage is a great resource. But if you're really looking at state by state, um, EdChoice, this is the legacy foundation of Milton and Rose Friedman. They keep track of every single policy uh, happening in the state on school choice. So they're a really, really great resource. They have great maps that you can click on to see exactly what's happening in your state and what needs to happen in your state on school choice. Lindsay, so much good news for parents and students. We appreciate the work you're doing. Thanks for joining us on The Daily Signal. Thanks for having me. We're going to leave it here for today. The Daily Signal podcast is broadcast from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. You can find it on the Ricochet Audio Network. All of our shows can be found at dailysignal.com slash podcasts. You can also subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review or give us some feedback. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News. The Daily Signal podcast will be back tomorrow with Kate and Daniel. Have a great week. You've been listening to The Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.